Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring in a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Daniel Harrison, an oceanographer at Southern Cross University in Australia. He researches how engineering intervention in marine systems can be used to improve ecological, environmental, and societal outcomes. Harrison's work spans topics from estuary and ocean biogeochemistry, fisheries management, and habitat modeling, hydrodynamic and biogeochemical modeling, through eco-engineering and geoengineering. A primary interest in talking with Daniel was his work on marine cloud brightening, a form of geoengineering. The idea to apply it to temporarily cool the Great Barrier Reef to help it deal with the consequences of marine heat waves that, that bleach the reefs. And now, marine cloud brightening is, a, is one of the solar geoengineering ideas that aims to brighten marine clouds by spraying up sea salt. And in 2020, Daniel Harrison and his team conducted the first explicit outdoor test of solar geoengineering. We haven't talked yet too much about Scopex, which is a more famous experiment that's in the works to do a stratospheric aerosol geoengineering experiment. And this is the first experiment that's actually conducted and actually solar geoengineering. But surprisingly, it's a milestone that received little attention and no opposition as far as we were aware. So in this episode, we discuss this experiment, uh, marine cloud brightening, the threats facing the Great Barrier Reef, and uh, his broader research. I came into this episode somewhat skeptical of the ability of marine cloud brightening to provide local and temporary cooling effect. I mean, after all, doesn't uh, wind and other convection processes cause the cool air and the, the temperature gradients to circulate relatively rapidly across the earth? But what I learned in this episode is that perhaps fortunately, the Great Barrier Reef provides a set of local environmental conditions that may make such local and temporary cooling possible in a way that could help protect the Great Barrier Reef, in particular from bleaching events. We touched on a number of other topics in our conversation, including how his effort fits into a larger program of working to protect the Great Barrier Reef on local public engagement efforts, which have been a point of particular contention in the world of outdoor solar geoengineering research and on the potential of marine cloud brightening to cool the polar regions, which is something that's been receiving increasing attention. And now, our conversation with Daniel Harrison. We welcome to Challenging Climate, Daniel Harrison. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with just a few words to help the audience understand not just where you're coming from, but how you got to where you're coming from. How did you end up being a uh, a scientist of marine clouds? <laughs> there was a lot of steps in that process. How far back are we going? When I was a, a young child, I used to, I'm the eldest of 10 kids, and I used to enjoy pulling apart my brother's and sister's toys and couldn't always manage to get them back together again. <laughs> and so everyone decided pretty early on that I'd be some kind of an engineer. 
How did I come to be a scientist in in marine clouds? So essentially, I've been an oceanographer and I've sort of largely focused in my career on researching human interactions with the ocean, essentially. A lot of that's been around climate change and fisheries and essentially ways in which we're changing the environment, but also looking at ways in how we can, I guess, work with or, or use the environment to help sort of undo some of the damage that we've done over the years of human development. Marine Club Brightening is one of a set of geoengineering ideas, but I think it's been put into sharp relief in Australia because the Great Barrier Reef experienced a very severe bleaching in, in 2016 during the El Nino then. What's the outlook for the Great Barrier Reef and why are we considering things like brightening marine clouds? The longer term outlook is pretty dire. And and you might have seen the news just today, actually, that UNESCO has come back again and updated its report and its recommendations to the World Heritage Commission to, to put the reef on the endanger list. Within our program of the Reef Restoration Adaptation Program, we have a large section on ecological modelling of the reef into the future. And the scenarios there are are also pretty grim as climate change intensifies, the ability of the reef to bounce back. At the moment, it's showing quite remarkable resilience in bouncing back to these more recent bleaching events. And and that's largely because the corals, the most susceptible to bleaching, are also the fastest growing. So they're getting whacked down and then popping up again. But as climate change progresses, more and more of the hardier and longer lived corals and slower growing corals start to become bleached. And the models are pretty clear that the reef's just on a declining trajectory and it can't keep up with the pace of climate change, essentially. And so it was actually that bleaching event in 2015, 2016 summer that prompted this work. We gathered together back at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science in those days, a group of academics and engineers with the sort of guiding idea that, that surely if the, the corals were getting too hot and bleaching, there, there must be some way that we can help to cool them back down again and avoid the bleaching. So pretty simple idea to start out with. And, and in the very beginning, we were quite focused and started on sort of ideas of trying to pump cool water up onto the reef increase oceanic overturning, those kind of things. And then marine cloud brightening crept into the mix as well. We we were aware of it from previous work, but none of us had looked at it very closely. But as we worked our way through the sort of various desktop feasibility studies, it just kept coming out on top. And essentially that was because of the energetic leverage. If it works over the reef, then the amount of energy you need to put in is very small compared to the amount of energy you get back in, in cooling of the ocean surface waters. Whereas something like trying to pump cold water up had a lot of problems. The reef is it's in a large lagoon. It's not very deep. So the water down deep is not that much colder. And you've got to put in nearly as much energy to move it as you get back in cooling. Let's take a step back for listeners to understand why coral reefs are so vulnerable to climate change. Now, my understanding is coral reefs are sort of a symbiosis of of an invertebrate animal that leaves behind a a shell that builds up the actual structure. And there's also a, a symbiotic role with algae, I believe. How does heat cause bleaching? And is there a role here for the acidification element of, of oceans as well? Or is it solely a temperature issue? So both issues certainly exist, although the acidification issue is, is not so directly related to the bleaching. The reason that heat causes the symbiosis to break down, it can actually happen in a couple of ways. So the most simplest is if if it gets so hot, it just becomes too hot for the coral to survive. Basically, it's it's cooked to death. But that's not mostly what we see on the reef, although we have, have seen it in some of the extreme events in some places. 
But what is more commonly seen is a breakdown between that symbiosis. And it's actually light that's also important in the process. So the zoothanthelli, the, the symbiotic algae, they're capturing light energy, taking up nutrients from the water column like other algaes in the ocean and producing energy, producing food. And obviously they need light for that process. But when they reach the extent of the amount of food that they can produce, they need to do something with the excess energy that's coming in from the light. And what they do is they produce free radicals, a reactive oxygen species. And these slowly build up, but there's also several processes by which they're expelled back out into the water column. And it's actually that the heat in the presence of light that breaks down this process and the reactive oxygen species build up to levels that can become toxic to the coral host. So the coral host expels the symbiotic algae completely. And that's why it's known as bleaching. It becomes white without the color of the algae. And it's then at risk of starving to death if it's, if it's unable to get repopulated by an algae that provides a large fraction of its food source. And so if you shade corals, even though the water's too hot, you can prevent them bleaching that way too. So you say the, the outlook for the corals is grim. But I think it is very grim or fatal almost, right? I mean, I, I remember the IPBES report, sort of like the IPCC, but for ecosystem services or biodiversity. I think it concluded that if warming reaches one and a half Celsius, we'd see a decline of 70 to 90% of coral extent in the tropics. And if it goes above two Celsius, we'll see a 99% decline in coral reef abundance in the tropics. So grim might be an understatement. <laughs> it does look like it really is essentially the end of the Great Barrier Reef we're looking at here on the current trajectory. Yeah, look, I, I like to be careful. I, I think we should be careful not to underestimate nature and life itself. I mean, the great unknown is what tricks corals can pull out of their hat in terms of adaptation, right? So by far the, the most likely scenario with those kind of warmings on the Great Barrier Reef is that you'll have a, a highly degraded and a very different ecosystem than what you have today. But I suspect that there'll be survivors and there'll still be, obviously, the structure of the reef will still be there. Actually, the greater threat in the long term is the ocean acidification. I think getting towards 2100, the Great Barrier Reef will become net dissolving. And so that could well spell the absolute end because it, rather than accreting coral and gradually moving and keeping up with the ocean surface, it'll start going the other way and just dissolving away. Even the sediments start becoming net dissolving later in the century. So coral reefs worldwide strike me as one of the highest risk ecosystems for moderate amounts of climate change in the 1.5 to 2 C, in as much as that's moderate. And we're seeing that now. And they're at risk, as you say, in the short term from the warming and from the longer term from the ocean acidification, which is caused by increased atmospheric carbon dioxide dissolving in water and forming an acid not unlike sparkling water that we drink or Coca-Cola. To contextualize marine cloud brightening, it's part of a set of potential technological and active interventions into coral reefs, in particular the Great Coral Reef, that include things that I've heard of are structural interventions so that structures could be put in place that the corals could grab onto, assisted evolution to take corals out, you put them in a lab, you subject them to warmer and more acidic waters, they evolve faster and you can reintroduce them, possibly with genetic modification. You mentioned pulling, pumping colder water from depths, which wouldn't work particularly well in the Great Barrier Reef, but in principle, it could work. Uh, and I've also heard of a film that might be able to put on top of the water to reflect light there. 
And some of these are part of this reef restoration and adaptation program. Can you say a little bit about this program and how it operates and how the Marine Cloud Brightening Project fits into that? Sure. It would be correct to say actually every single one of those ideas has been considered by the program at least. So the the idea behind the program was to cast an incredibly wide net and just to consider absolutely everything. And I think we, we got up to around 160 something ideas in the initial feasibility study that were either submitted by people within the program or the public or other scientists. And those were whittled down to a list of around 43 or so that were recommended for further investigation, recommended as worthwhile to invest money in R&D to, to either rule them in or rule them out as being feasible, useful ideas. Then the sort of limitation of funding and just capacity, to be honest, whittled that down a little bit further to some prioritized ideas that we're working on first with the full expectation that not all will get developed to maturity. And, and as some fall out, some of those next on the list might get brought back in. So cloud brightening is one of the ones that we're actively working on at the moment. It's sort of unique, I think, in the program in that if it works and it can be implemented at scale, it holds the potential to preserve the entire ecosystem more or less as we know it. It, it helps the old corals, the young corals, the baby corals, everything, and, and not just the corals for that matter. Whereas a lot of the other ideas, you make some compromises in terms of having to select certain species, for example, to seek that enhanced tolerance to warming through whatever means, whether it's assisted evolution or direct genetic manipulation or selective breeding. You have to sort of try to pick the corals that you think are the most foundational species and, and then hope that they'll help to prop up the rest of the ecosystem. Just on that program, is this an exploratory research type of program or is it an effort that will actually involve billions of dollars being spent to actually intervene in the system? Like, What's the program's ambition and scale? So the ambition is very large. The, the program was established with the goal of, for want of a better term, saving the reef which means that one of the key criteria for keeping ideas in the program was that they had to be scalable. I mean, we're, we're talking about an area uh, the size of Italy. And so some of the sort of more direct interventionist techniques of taking coral and, and enhancing their genetics, they had to also be combined with research into automation to be able to demonstrate that they could scale up to a meaningful ecosystem scale. The way the program works is it's very much an R&D program. So we started with the research and as that matures, then we, we work on developing the how, basically. And then the program structured to then hand that knowledge off to industry to actually do the restoration or the protection or, or to implement the technologies. And so we have some very tight rules around the intellectual property. Basically, we, we can't use in the program any intellectual property that the owners of are unwilling to license for free and all of the intellectual property that we develop in the program. All of the partners have agreed that it will be available completely free for use on the Great Barrier Reef, including by commercial operations. So to enable that translation from, from research into implementation. And what's the commitment? And presumably this is funded by the Australian government. How much are they putting behind these ideas? That's a tricky question because it comes in different packages and parts and, and gets divided up in different ways for different things. So the, the initial 
four-year program. It's funded roughly to the tune of, of $200 million by the Australian government and another $100 million put in by all of the research partners. So all of the universities involved have, have had to co-invest a third of, of the costs. Well, that's quite a lot of money. The other side of this is, I mean, the Great Barrier Reef, I think, is an enormous tourist pool in Australia. I think it has a, you know, enormous economic benefits in terms of just direct tourism dollars. It's a little bit dated now, but there was a, a study that found that the reef was worth about $7 billion a year to the Australian economy. So it's a lot of money, but it is a very large research program as well with very large potential benefits. And so the actual initial feasibility study was a business case. The end result of that was a business case to the government to demonstrate in those kind of terms whether it was investable to invest in the R&D based on the expected returns if the technologies were able to have a benefit. And speaking of technologies, let's move on to marine cloud brightening. Yeah, could you explain to our listeners what is marine cloud brightening and how does it work? Sure. So essentially, the idea is that when clouds form, every single droplet in the cloud needs a nucleus to condense around. And, and we call these cloud condensation nuclei. But what they are essentially is just a, a tiny little speck of, of material floating around in the atmosphere. And we found that the water vapor in the air can just become more and more supersaturated. And you can see this in poles sometimes where the air is just so clean, the clouds can't form. And and then if steam even can't form, and if you, you add a source of um, these condensation nuclei, the steam will suddenly appear coming out of the top of your coffee, for example. And so what happens is occasionally in, in areas mostly over the fairly remote oceanic regions, the air is, is so clean and, and devoid of these particles that when the clouds form, they're forced to form quite large droplets, which are poor reflectors of light. And so there's a gap sometimes between how bright the cloud could be and how bright it actually is because of a, a lack of cloud condensation nuclei. And so when you have these circumstances, adding more cloud condensation nuclei can brighten the cloud. So by brightening, we mean a, sort of as viewed from above, more sunlight is reflected back into space and less reaches the Earth. And it, it so happens that over the reef, you need several things for cloud brightening as a sort of intentional intervention to work. You need low-lying cloud because the general idea is that you would produce these particles copying natural processes over the oceans. Roughly 50% of the cloud condensation nuclei are tiny sea salt crystals formed by breaking waves. And the other half are biogenic compounds formed by phytoplankton and, and marine life. Over the reef, it so happens that we have low cloud, not the most ideal type is predominant. Some places we have marine stratocumulus clouds, but over the reef, we don't need the perfect clouds. We need clouds that respond well enough to give us enough cooling to mitigate enough of the bleaching to essentially change the ecological trajectory of the reef. And, and that's a really important point, I think, that's often missed. If you were trying to do cloud brightening for other purposes, like cooling the entire planet, you'd naturally only want to head or at least head first to the to the places where it worked best. That's not absolutely necessary for the reef. Then the other thing you need is obviously those naturally low levels of cloud condensation nuclei. And it just so happens that over the reef during summer, predominant airflow is, is bringing in some of the, the cleanest air outside of the poles out in the, the remote South Pacific in over the reef. That's the predominant airflow. And that air is, is very low in cloud condensation nuclei and, until it hits the land where it starts to pick up additional sources of dust and things like that and, and human emissions. 
The third thing that you need if you want to cool the water down is you need a, a high residence time of the water near the surface. And so it's a common misconception, I think, as well, that people say, oh, okay, well, if you can get cloud brightening to work for the reef, we'll, we could go and apply it over here in Thailand, for example, or to other reefs worldwide. But that's not often going to work because, like I mentioned before, the Great Barrier Reef, it's known as the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon. It's very shallow and the water in there sticks around. And so if you're doing this every day, you're brightening the clouds just a little bit on any given day. It would be barely perceptible most of the time or probably imperceptible to the human eye. But because that water is stuck there circulating in that lagoon for quite a while, it just gradually cools down a little bit each day. And over the space of between about four to six weeks, it cools down and cools down and then it levels out if you do this continuously over the summer months. And, and that's because you've, you've reached that residence time of when new water is flowing into the lagoon and matching that flowing back out. And so this work being conducted on marine cloud brightening in, in this area, we're going to talk about a, a field test in a moment, but how much um, like climate modeling or regional weather modeling are you doing of this idea? To like, how do you know it will be effective in this region? So quite a few, <laughs> quite, quite quite a few different things. So we've we've now got just fairly recently we've run the the cloud modeling part of it in three different models, and and all have come up with a similar answer of sort of being able to uh, increase the cloud albedo by at least about ten percent. And so that's pretty significant. That was the lower bound that we chose when we did our initial exploratory modeling. And each of those models, none of them capture sort of all three of the processes which are impacted, which can lead to cooling, which is the, the direct effect, the first indirect effect, and then the, the second indirect effects. And to elaborate, the direct effect is the particles scattering light themselves. Yep. The indirect effect is the one we were talking about of making the clouds brighter. The first indirect effect is that direct effect on cloud droplet size distribution. So the, the initial brightening of the cloud. And then the second indirect effects um, encompass a, a whole heap of processes which are then altered by having, in the first place, altered the droplet size distribution in the cloud. That's just one fairly simple example now that you've made the droplets in the cloud a little bit smaller, that cloud's a little bit less likely to rain. If that cloud doesn't precipitate, then it sticks around longer, and that also can lead to an increase in, in net cooling. So ultimately, we're concerned about temperature, I believe. What are the relative contributions of these three effects, which I find fascinating? I had no idea that, that adding cloud condensation nuclei would have these three categories of effect, the third of which is sort of a grab bag. So there's whatever, a dozen or something. What are the relative magnitudes of those three effects? We hear most about the first indirect effect. Uh, that's why it's called marine cloud brightening and not particle re reflectivity. And what's the total effect? What, what What's your estimate that that 10% increase in cloud albedo will manifest as a temperature, let's say, of, of the uh, lower air or the upper water? So quantifying all three of the effects is, is really the challenge, especially even both sets of the indirect effects. I guess it's also important to notice that the second indirect effects could potentially go against you too, depending on the clouds. And of course, they're different every day, but depending on the types of the clouds, and the, well, depending on many, many factors, actually, the, the supersaturation levels reach, the existing aerosol size distribution, the updraft speed, the list goes on and on. 
some of those second indirect effects could potentially act in the other direction. And I'm not sure that we can quantify all of them yet. I guess that's one of the real drivers behind the experimental work. At the moment, our knowledge on this, our scientific knowledge on this is is really quite incomplete. And you can get a different answer by using a different model. And so the whole idea of the experimental work that we've been building up to and leading into is to constrain those models so that we can have some confidence in in one at least that's able to match the experimental results and, and then extrapolate. We will never be able to do an experiment under every single possible permutation of cloud and atmospheric conditions, right? So ultimately, we, we need to develop better knowledge in, in the area of being able to predict these indirect effects. But very, very roughly speaking, we've in our initial modeling, we explored the direct and the first indirect effect and attributed something like maybe we could achieve about a 10% increase in albedo through each. The direct effect depends heavily on the size distribution of particles that you're able to produce. And so Good question. I've gone back and done the calculation again very recently. But one, the targets of the research program is to optimize that for both the direct and indirect effects. Which may be two different answers, right? Or are likely to be two different answers, two different sizes of particles. No, there's a holy grail, actually. If you if you can produce just the right particle size of around 200 nanometers for the reef, it depends on the uh, the relative humidity on the day, but for typical relative humidities over the Great Barrier Reef during summer, if you can produce just exactly 200 nanometer diameter sea salt crystals, you'll, you'll hit the Goldilocks zone for both. But we can't quite do that yet. It's immensely challenging. <laughs> So so you may well have two different systems because you'd be happy to accept smaller for the first indirect effect when there were suitable clouds, but it might be more energy efficient to produce larger than that 200 nanometers to target the direct effect when there is no cloud. Yeah. So I guess one thing here is probably for our audience worth stressing that the clouds and especially aerosol cloud interactions are one of the deepest areas of uncertainty in, in cloud modeling. And so this research that you're conducting, going from one of the cleanest air sources and then sort of selectively altering it, might shine a big light on one of the biggest uncertainties is, which is what has our pollution that we've added from burning fossil fuels, creating these tiny particles as a byproduct? What has that done to the clouds of the world? And how much cooling has that produced, which has masked the warming that we've had from greenhouse gases? So I think there's a big potential value there. I guess just on that point of the weather conditions, I, I know that you know when we have a heat wave on land, it's typically you know clear skies, stable conditions, and so there wouldn't be very many clouds to modify in a in a heat wave on land. Are heat waves over the ocean different? Are, are you expecting mainly clear sky conditions when it's getting too hot, or will it be quite cloudy in these hottest times? It's a really interesting question and one with a fairly long answer, I'm afraid. So. The heat waves last a lot longer than than a sort of a typical period of clear skies or overcast skies. So the bleaching events on the reef typically follow up buildup of heat stress that lasts over many weeks and, and even months. Whereas a typical, I suppose, doldrum type conditions where you might have clear skies, low wind, very high sunlight, they typically only last four or five days. Uh, so, the, so the heat wave lasts a lot longer and the cloud brightening 
when we've run the modeling scenarios, we've done them over a couple of different of these marine heatwave events that have led to bleaching. And you can see clear differences during the, the strong El Nino of 2015-2016. The cloud brightening was less effective at reducing the bleaching stress. It reduced it by about 60% typically. And whereas the following year where we also had bleaching, it reduced it by about 75%. And the reason for that difference was during the strong El Nino year, there was less low suitable cloud cover. However, it was still enough to have a really big impact, obviously. So part of the answer is that although you do have these changing conditions, they're sort of averaged out by the timescales over which you're changing the ocean surface temperature. The other thing, though, that, that is really interesting about this question is that despite that, the doldrum conditions, we think, are quite important in the bleaching because you have this buildup of stress in certain years during this marine heat wave. But because of what we we're talking about before, the interactions of temperature and light on that symbiosis between the, the coral host and the algae, we think that it's typically there's, there's always a few doldrum periods. And we think that it's those doldrum periods on top of the accumulated heat stress that's what really pushes the corals over the edge. And, and into severe bleaching. And so we, another idea that we are working on in the RAP program is fogging, which is fundamentally in one way very, very similar to the marine cloud brightening. We're pumping seawater and we're atomizing it into, into very small droplets, but the droplets are orders of magnitude larger than the marine cloud brightening. With the marine cloud brightening, it's incredibly hard to get your head around just how small these droplets and resulting salt crystals are. We produce trillions and trillions of droplets from a, a sort of a shot glass of seawater. And in fact, our entire system at the moment only pumps about four liters a minute, very, very low amounts of, of seawater. It's incredible. The, you know, the, the salt crystals are, are nano-sized, smaller than a virus. On the other hand, the fogging idea you're, you're, is more akin to what you might see at an outdoor concert or something, sometimes called misting. So you're, you're just spraying seawater in sort of micron-sized droplets, tens of micron-sized droplets, so many orders of magnitude larger than the cloud brightening. And that means that you can only do it over a small area. The idea is to create a, a sort of a low-hanging sea fog that directly shades the corals. But it's what you might apply during the doldrum conditions when the wind speed's low and, and everything goes wrong for the corals at once because they've had this heat stress build up over the summer and then all of a sudden they've got full sunlight and the things that go along with that actually all exacerbate the situation for the corals. The low winds allow the ocean to settle down so the waves disappear. Waves reflect some sunlight and prevent it reaching the corals. So now that's letting more light through. When the water settles down, all of the sediments suspended in the water column settle out and the water becomes clear during doldrum conditions. So this then exacerbates the problem further because even more light is getting down to the corals. And then because of all of this settling down of the ocean, you also have less circulation, less movement of the water. So it's able to heat up more in response to all of this extra light as well. So sort of absolutely everything goes wrong for the corals at once during those doldrum periods. It actually um, doesn't matter so much, though, for the cloud brightening because it works over such a longer timescale of the whole summer. You've, you've actually cooled down the baseline water temperature before that doldrum comes along. So to recap a bit, the coral bleaching ar uh, arises largely because of temperature, if not exclusively because of temperature. And one way to take the edge off of those hot spells is by brightening the marine clouds. And it turns out because smaller water droplets make for whiter clouds and because the bottleneck in the formation is the lack of cloud condensation nuclei, 
the introduction of these particles can help brighten those clouds. Something we haven't mentioned explicitly, but you just brought up there in passing, is that the source of these particles in marine cloud brightening would be the marine water itself, salt water, sprayed at a very fine mist, and then the remaining water evaporates. And as you emphasized, a very fine mist leaves behind little salt particles that can help form clouds with smaller droplets and thus whiter. So let's move on to talk a bit about what you did in early, I think it was February of 2020, right before the COVID restrictions rolled through the world. You did an outdoor test. Could you say a little bit about what you did and why you did it? Sure. That was prior to this large research program that we're part of now with the hefty funding. And so it was essentially done with some seed money. So that research back at the Marine Centre had led to a proposal to government to to fund this. So it said, hey, the cloud brightening idea for the reef looks like it has some legs. Can you please fund us? And they said, well, we have this competitive process that you could enter where we partnered with the Queensland state government and we're looking for ideas that might be able to help the reef. And so that was a two-part competitive process. In the first part, we won some money to do the first phase, which was a desktop study to show basically the, the scientific evidence behind your idea. And then after that, I think there was just four ideas or something that were funded to go to a proof of concept stage. And this was really um, insufficient money for what we did. And so we, we were very, very lucky to have, uh, you know, really excellent partners. EMI Controls in Italy helped us to build the spray cannon and co-invested a, a lot of the cost of that. And as did many of our other partners, uh, Ron Allen Deep Sea Services was another. But what we did I, it was, was really, a, it was a proof of concept. It was to show that the technology, because in the background, we'd been working away on the nozzle technology for a few years in the lab to generate the sea salt aerosols. And so it was to prove that you could do this outdoors at a scale that was starting to demonstrate that it might actually be practically feasible to generate enough sea salt crystals to influence clouds. So it was really the, the very first step in a long process of building up to doing experiments where you are actually changing the clouds. And one of the key things that we were interested in, in those couple of field trips actually, was whether we'd be able to actually get sufficient lifting of the sea salt crystals we were producing at sea surface up to cloud height. Because if the particles are not getting ingested into cloud, obviously, then you're not going to have much success. So in layman's terms, you had a boat, you were out on the sea, you had pumps, you had nozzles. You did actively spray very fine mist of seawater into the atmosphere. So it stopped short of having a measurable effect on the clouds, but it did demonstrate in terms of the droplets and consequently the particles that were introduced that it could, at a larger scale, have an effect on the clouds. Did I understand sort of the, the magnitude of what you did roughly correctly? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. I think probably to set the scales, we in 2020 in that very first trip, we're probably doing about one tenth of the production rate of, of particles that we think you'd need to do to start to generate enough to actually measure an impact in the clouds. And that's still orders of magnitude less than what you'd need to do to actually start trying to cool the water, obviously. The politics of increasing the Earth's reflectivity are contentious, sometimes polarized. And some opponents of further exploring this broader category of solar geoengineering, 
or uh, solar radiation modification, as it's called in more official contexts, often point towards outdoor testing and experimentation as a, a sort of a Rubicon, a line that shouldn't be crossed, etc. How did the test that you did in February of, of 2020 play out politically? Were, were there Was there local engagement? Was there local opposition, local support? Or was it under the radar? Can you shed some light on, on the context in Australia? Sure. I think that we've avoided a lot of the contentiousness right from the outset because what the project is about is is not geoengineering, I guess, certainly not in the, the traditional sense of the word, which was, was looking at technologies to cool the whole planet, essentially. And so I think people are not always, and, and the public are not always given enough credit for being able to understand the differences, I don't think. I think that they do in, in this case. The risks and benefits around intervening over the reef by brightening the clouds for a couple of months as a reactive measure when there's a marine heat wave uh, to avoid the coral bleaching, you know, the risks and benefits of, of that are completely different than the risks and benefits of trying to do marine cloud brightening on very large scales over sections of the world's oceans to try and cool the whole planet. Might be the same technology, but the implementation is different and the risks and the benefits are completely different and, and need to be evaluated on the basis of, of what the risks and potential benefits are. And that's, I think that that's been fairly widely understood the whole way through with our project. And so to get back to your question, the within Australia, both local, regional and, and national, we've had very good support the whole way through this project. Certainly wasn't done under the radar, although COVID did sort of impact this, you know, in the end, it ended up being an absolute skeleton crew that could go in 2020 because it was right in the early days of the COVID outbreak and a bunch of our partner institutions wouldn't actually allow their researchers to travel. So we ended up going with just a handful of researchers from Southern Cross University and none of the partners were able to join in the end, which was unfortunate. But in terms of the level of engagement, all of the work that we do in the Reef Restoration Adaptation Program, we don't do any work on Indigenous sea country without the prior informed consent of the traditional owners of, of that sea country. And so we, we haven't been knocked back yet in anywhere that we wanted to do work with the cloud brightening. But if we were, we'd, we'd have to go and do it somewhere else or all continue to, to seek common ground with those traditional owners. That's the hard rule within our program. And so prior to going in the field, we were engaging with local community, with indigenous communities on the reef, with also not-for-profits and things that have an interest in this space, the North Queensland Conservation Council, for example, as well as state governments. There's also a process the Great Barrier Reef is, is probably one of the most highly and actively managed conservation estates in the world. I think there's a federal legislation specifically to protect it and a federal agency whose sole job is to protect the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park and manage it. And so the governance process through that legislated governance process is, is also involves community consultation. When you apply to do work on the Great Barrier Reef, it gets put out on a, on a sort of a website over for a period of public submission. Uh, so the general public can submit whether they think this research should go ahead or not. That forms part of the permitting assessment process. I guess one of the other things that helped um, avoid any contentiousness, I guess, was that we were working with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority from the very beginning as well. And so we were also guided by how they wanted to see the research develop. And one of the things that they felt was very important was that the research progressed 
in steps with a lot of community and engagement and public consultation, but also in scale, that it scaled up gradually and that we weren't off doing the research somewhere else, you know, outside of the Great Barrier Reef. They wanted us to do the research for there, right? What they didn't want was us going off, doing the research somewhere we didn't need a permit and coming to them in five or 10 years time and say, okay, here we are. Hi, guys, we're, we're ready to start cloud brightening the reef for you. Um, that would have been a very poor engagement with the regulator. So at least within Australia, I think the Great Barrier Reef is an incredibly important part of our national identity. And, and I think Australians are very clued into the threats that the reef faces and, and also understanding that as much preferable as it would have been to avoid the need for this whole research program in the first place, we've simply waited too long in taking action on emissions and we're still not taking meaningful action now. And so I think the support is there because people realize how dire the problem is. A moment ago, you mentioned that your funding situation has improved since you did the outdoor proof of concept test. What are the next steps in this line of research for uh, you and your team? So last year, we demonstrated that we're now capable of getting the sufficient number of sea salt crystals to cloud base and ingested into the clouds to start to measure the cloud perturbations. Unfortunately, we were severely impacted by COVID again last year. We had two research vessels, one to do the spraying and one to do the monitoring of the impacts. And um, one of the vessels had a COVID outbreak and the whole ship ended up getting COVID and and stuck in port and and we missed our, our window essentially that we'd hired the ship for. But we still did get some important results, which was basically that, that we were able to demonstrate that we've now scaled up to sufficient size to do the experiment that we want to do. And so we'll be aiming to do that next year. And so the next step really is that we'll be starting to actually look for these changes in the cloud properties by flying aircraft outfitted with cloud microphysical sensors back and forth through the cloud, as well as looking with satellites and also with ground-based or surface-based remote sensing. And just on that, I mean, I remember seeing some photos from the the initial experiment. It was a kind of a strange square-looking ship one spray cannon on is this going to be a much larger vessel is it more spray cannons like is it a larger intervention than that first one or is it the same intervention but just better observed it's a larger ship the same spray cannon <laughs> many australians have a fond place in their heart for one of the research vessels that we're using because it's it's actually the uh, magnetic island ferry so for your listeners around the world um, magnetic island is a, a very picturesque island just off of the coast of townsville And there's a regular ferry service that can drive on in your car and it takes you out to the island. And a lot of people like to holiday there and it's a a very beautiful place. The company that runs that ferry service actually have two ships and they allow us to use one of them as a research vessel for part of the year. So it gets converted from a car ferry and we load shipping containers with accommodation modules and and office space and research labs and everything all onto that ship. And then we, we sail it off and use it for research. So this year, we, we are actually building a second system. So we'll, we'll have two systems. But what's, what's changed really is improvements in the technology rather than the, the sort of bulk scale. So it's still the same cannon, essentially. It has more nozzles on it now and more air compression and, and water pumping behind it. So looking beyond the Great Barrier Reef, Marine Cloud Brightening is one of the ideas that could be deployed at larger scale to have a potential impact on you know, other regions or, or even globally on the climate. And one of our former guests on this podcast, Sir David King, recently had a, an article in The Guardian about his proposal to use Marine Cloud Brightening in the Arctic. 
suggesting that within the next seven years, this could be deployed at scale to help lower temperatures in the Arctic and help save the ice and so on. What are your reactions to this potential high marine cloud burning in those regions? So I basically don't have an opinion because I haven't looked into the science behind it yet. I would like to. So there's been a host of proposals to use marine cloud brightening to save redwood forests or to mitigate the strength of hurricanes and even two different approaches to that. One of them makes some sense. You you could potentially do cloud brightening over the Gulf of Mexico and, and sort of gradually cool the water down like in the reef over a period of time and, and therefore reduce the probably the frequency and the intensity of hurricanes. That makes some sense. But I've even heard it suggested that you could rush out in front of a hurricane and do cloud brightening and, and weaken it as it tracked across the ocean, which is is obviously quite fanciful. So I guess my point here is that there was a a couple of years of work that went on very quietly in the background within the university, really, I guess, getting our ducks in a row and really doing the science behind the problem to convince ourselves that the idea could work for the reef. And I, I guess you need that level of investigation for sort of any new potential application of the technology. And I, I think that an awful lot of them won't stack up because you, you need so many things. It's incredibly fortuitous that we think we're still not sure. We've still got to do the work to really get there to be sure that this will work for the reef. And it is not safe by orders of magnitude. You know, if, if our estimates were, were 10 times higher than the minimum we thought we required, we'd feel really on quite safe ground in terms of the idea for the reef. But it's not. It's sort of within the bounds of uncertainty still that it may work or it may not, or it may work even even better than we've we've sort of hoped. But it's quite fortuitous that, that all of the things line up even that well for the reef. I, you really need the right type of cloud and you really need the cloud to have that gap that you can exploit. I mean, another common misconception, I think, is that, you know, if, as climate change continues to worsen, if the cloud brightening does work, you could just keep doing more and more of it. It's not true at all. There's this kind of gap, right? And also a law of diminishing returns. So the first 100 extra cloud condensation nuclei you add gives you some amount of benefit, but the next 100 after that only gives you half the benefit of the first 100 and the next 100 after that only a quarter. So it's an asymptoting curve. But in a lot of places, that gap just won't even exist at all. Over the Arctic, I'm not sure. I haven't looked into it enough to satisfy myself to have an opinion. And back to the Great Barrier Reef, if things were as intended, 15, 20 years, I don't know what the time horizon is, what would the system look like if this was implemented to keep temperatures below? I mean, we're going to see global temperatures past one and a half Celsius fairly soon in the next 10, 15 years. The Great Barrier Reef is going to experience another strong El Nino in the next two, three, four years. What would a system look like that could actually keep the Great Barrier Reef intact? Are we talking 100 ships? What would we see if this were being done? It's a really good question, and and there's a few different scenarios of what it might look like, but I think the most plausible would be something like a mix of type of stations. So you'd you'd certainly, I think, you'd utilize islands or similar structures where they existed on the reef, just because it would be lower cost and it makes more sense. Ships of opportunity, there's actually really quite a remarkably large amount of shipping that does move back and forth and up and down the reef. So there's the potential and also in and out in terms of sort of tourism and, and fishing type operations. So utilizing ships of opportunity would be another lower cost option. Obviously, having a dedicated ship is kind of the most expensive option, right? So that could cover some of it. It's not going to cover all of it. Certainly in, in remote areas, you'll, you'll need dedicated ships or barges. I can imagine a scenario where you had depots along the coast. 
And then sort of at the start of a summer, if it was predicted to be a severe one, you could have sort of 20 barges or something serviced by one support vessel that towed them out, put them into place and and then sort of did the rounds with maintenance or, or refueling them if fuel was required. But in terms of how many stations, if you were to try and do the entire Great Barrier Reef, you're looking at, at once, which also is, is not necessary. You, you're looking at hundreds. I think one thing that, that might help is if we can be good enough at predicting where the bleaching is going to occur, it, it's never the whole reef at once. It's sort of a quarter or a third of the reef typically, maybe a bit more, maybe up to half. So if you, if you knew which area was at risk of bleaching ahead of time, you wouldn't necessarily have to do the whole reef. One of the studies we did is we looked at how much did the efficiency drop if you shrunk the area over which you were doing it. If you do the whole reef, you get the best efficiency because you're, you're cooling all of the water within that lagoon. But we did find that if you dropped right down to only doing sort of a quarter of the reef, you only lost about 20% of the cooling efficiency. So it was a penalty, but not excessive. All right. Well, we like to wrap up on a note of optimism. So what gives you hope about the future when thinking about climate change? All right, well, I'll stick with the cloud brightening. I think the thing that gives me hope is that, well, two things. One, that the, the modeling shows that if we can achieve something like Paris, if we can bring down our emissions and start to turn things around and the cloud brightening works. And another thing that gives me hope is that the, the, the modeling shows that the cloud brightening synergizes really, really well with all of these other ideas we have for the reef. Because if you're trying to restore already degraded reef, if you can also help take the pressure off of those new corals while they're becoming established and spreading, then it, um, it has a multiplier effect. And so what gives me hope is that if we can have something like a Paris-type future, then the modelling we've done for all of these interventions in the Great Barrier Reef Restoration Adaptation Program, it looks really good. They have such a synergistic effect on each other that the models kind of, you know, in the most optimistic scenarios go crazy and the reef gets better and better and better than it is today in terms of coral cover. So, I mean, obviously that's a, an artefact of the experiments in the models, but it's, it's very positive. Of course, the important factor behind all of that, though, is that, that what the models have also unfortunately shown us is that if we don't take action on climate change under a business as usual type scenario, then we don't see that. What we see is at best, if all of the interventions that we're working on, including the cloud brightening, work as well as we hope, we can still only buy the reef a few decades because of that sort of exponential curve of warming and you just can't keep up with it, basically. So... I guess the two things go hand in hand. The hope requires action. No technology is just going to save us on its own. Well, I think that's a great point on which to end it. Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.